0: Today, my reading is going to be from. I changed my mind whilst I was up there, so (laughs) it's good. Yeah, right. Uh, It's going to be. It's now going to be from Isaiah sixty-three. So, so sixty-three. We're going to begin at verse seven. It says, "I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which He is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us." Yes, the many good things he has done for us for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we do, as always, pray that our time here help us understand you better and understand your love for us more. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So welcome everyone to Wellspring Worship Center. My name is James. I'm the pastor here. Uh, I had some really grand plans about our sermon series uh, for the next few weeks, uh, but then I felt really inspired after listening to my friend's sermon last week. And what I was inspired by is how problematic his sermon was. Uh, and there was plenty in the sermon that I disagree with, uh, but the reason I was—I felt it was so very problematic, actually, uh, is because I know that there were people that walked away from that sermon uh, believing that they were less loved by God than when they walked into it. And I know there are also people that thought that God loved some of the most marginalized people in our society less too. And whenever our sermons or our words or our messages or our conversations, leaving people thinking that they are less loved by God rather than more loved by God, then uh, we have failed as communicators and pastors. I will say as well, uh, this is someone I really care about as well, and is someone who desperately cares about people and wants them to know that they're loved, which is why it broke my heart. Uh, so the first thing it inspired me to do was like change the entire direction of the next few sermons I do. Uh, the second is it inspired me to write a 2,500-word email to him <laughs> telling how problematic his sermon was. <laughs> it is not a surprise I don't have many friends. <laughs> well, that is okay. I will say... Uh, if I didn't care about staying friends, it would have been a 2,000-word email, but there were 500 words of how much I loved him in there. So, you know, we're, we're still good, and we're going to meet up soon, and we're going to talk it through. Um, <laughs> but it really inspired me for us to spend a bit more time focusing on how we uh, read the Bible and maybe disillusioning us of some things we think we know uh, until we really spend time wrestling with Scripture. And hopefully, the idea is that we walk away from this with a more complete understanding of how much God uh, loves us. So, the next few weeks, we're doing a series called Bad Ideas About the Bible. Uh, See how this goes. And as I say, the hope is that we have a better understanding of what the Bible is and how much God loves us. We as a church do, of course, believe the Bible is very central to our understanding as to who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, who we are, what creation is, and how all those pieces interact, hopefully by mutual bonds of love. That's the idea. Uh, We believe that the Bible reveals... God's perfect love for us and instructs us as to how better love one another. <laughs> how do we think Christians are doing on that? Not well. I will say, and I don't know, I don't want to sound too smug, I'm really excited by what's happening at Wellspring. Um I really uh, do delight in this. I see this as a community that's like really trying its best to love one another, and I know there's like lots of new people here, and getting to know new people is weird, and when you're new, it's weird, and so we're all kind of stumbling through that, but for me, it's beautiful, and it's worth it, and it's exciting, and the last few weeks, I've just seen some really incredibly beautiful interactions between people I know don't know each other, but are showing care and compassion and love, and that is really exciting for me, and, and our hope is, of course, that Wellspring be a place where everyone can feel that. But today's bad idea about the Bible is, God is really mad at me. And I wonder how much this resonates with people. I know some people have been like raised in traditions where uh, it's pretty central to the teaching. You hear an awful lot about how mad God is at you, that God is perpetually angry with humanity, and uh, occasionally God's anger is abated, but uh, not, not usual. Uh, and when I think about when I didn't really know anything about the Bible, which was, I don't know that much now, but I used to know even less, um, I really had this idea that God, especially the God of the Old Testament, was, was angry uh, at me all the time, was angry at most things, but very angry at me. Uh, and then my kind of experience of Christianity, when I'd walk past street preachers, they seemed pretty angry as well, uh, which makes sense. If you think God's angry, you're going to create yourself in God's image. Which now, uh, as I get to know the Bible more, feels interesting and different and weird to me because we know the fruits of the Spirit are uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so if God's Spirit is present, we should be feeling those things and and not anger. Uh, It seems strange to me that we have a perception of God being mad all the time when we know that God's Spirit brings the opposite. But today I thought I was going to dig into four misconceptions and then it just got whittled down to two because I ran out of time, as that happens. Uh, But a couple of the misconceptions I think we have about God being mad and why. So question one, when we approach scripture, is God mad or is God sad? Yeah, I'm just going to like rhyme for the rest of it. Is God mad or is God Jesus' dad? Uh that's not one of these <laughs> that's not even in my notes I just came up with that that's <laughs> not as funny as I think I am uh, But okay is God mad or is God sad like how does that question affect you when you think about God being sad like is that something you're even comfortable asking Is that something we're able to acknowledge, the idea that God might be sad? Uh, There's some forms of Christianity that see uh, the ideals of Christianity as being very uh, strong or uh, typically masculine, and uh, typically masculine men don't show emotions and they don't show sadness. They perhaps see those things as a form of weakness. Uh, Or perhaps that something is missing. uh, There's an incompleteness there, perhaps. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who's one of the most famous Christian philosophers of all time, maybe the most, he's quite significant, uh, a thousand years ago said that God doesn't have emotions, and we kind of just ran with that. (laughs) He said that he has a whole thing. He's like, if you have emotions, it means like you're missing something or you desire something, and and God doesn't do that. So God doesn't have emotions. And so for kind of a thousand years, we're like, yeah, yeah, sounds good enough for us. Uh, The problem is, of course, this just completely disregards what the Bible says about God, and I think that's important. Really, really early on in Scripture, like really early on, you don't have to go very far in, we're told about God being sad. Uh, Genesis 6, which is the story of the flood and Noah's Ark, which we may be familiar with, uh, we we hear this, uh, God saw how great the wickedness of every human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was to only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Uh, That final phrase there, his heart was deeply troubled, is a bit more kind of flowery than it needs to be. Uh, A friend of mine who's one of the most gifted linguists I know translates this as God's heart was sad. When God saw the cruelties that people performed on one another and the way that they mistreated creation, God's heart was sad. How could it not be? Uh, my favorite theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, says The only way that God isn't sad when he looks at the cruelties in the world is if God is a monster. There's no way to look at some of the cruelties going on right now and not be affected by it, not be wounded by it, not be made sad by it. We know that God is not a monster, so we know that is not true. The other thing is, this has been going on a while, so I gave you a thousand years ago, we're like, you know, God can't be sad, he can't feel emotions. It actually kind of goes back before that as well. Uh, I'm going to bore you with a history lesson for a second. Uh, Maria told me that Michael's into history. This might just be for the two of us. Uh, the rest of you are welcome to listen, whatever. So, um, all right, some history. <laughs> this is broad strokes, so don't like pick me up on the little details, okay? Uh, the Bible has been translated a lot of times by a lot of people, and that's okay. That's a good thing. Uh, but we need to be honest and acknowledge that translation is really difficult to do. It's really tricky. And one of the reasons it's really tricky to do well is that different people will bring their own biases and their own preferences. Ultimately, As much as we want to be objective we can't not be affected by our society by our relationships by the people around us by the things that we've read we are affected by the things that we surround ourselves with and so an objective translation of the bible and like y'all have a favorite that's fine there's no problem with having a favorite but don't think it's like the best that's that's not how this works And what, but that's why there's so many translations of the Bible, and I think that's an okay thing. People aren't like lying when they translate the Bible their own way. It's just impossible to be objective, and it's good to be honest about the fact it's impossible to be objective. But one of the earliest translations of the Bible, so early, in fact, it predates Jesus. Uh, so it's the Old Testament, not the New Testament we're talking about here. So about 2100 years ago, give or take, uh, the Old Testament was translated from its original Hebrew into Greek. Uh, this translation is known as the Septuagint. Let's say that together. Septuagint. Well done. <laughs> And so this is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And this translation is heavily influential. I can't stress how influential this uh, translation was. It's what most of the New Testament authors were reading. So when Paul is doing a lot of his reading of the Old Testament, he's reading this Greek translation of it. A lot of the times when the gospel authors cite the Old Testament, they'll use the Septuagint translation because it's Greek. That's the language that they were speaking. That's the language they know. So this informed a lot of people in the times of Jesus as to who God was because that's what the scriptures were telling them. However, the people doing the translation were, guess where they were from? Greece, well done, and surrounding areas that spoke Greek. But basically, the people translating the Bible into Greek were Greek, and they were affected by the Greek community, by Greek society, via what they knew about the Greek world. And the Greeks had their own issues, lots of issues. And one of their issues is that the Greek pantheon, so the gods of Greek mythology, are kind of jerks. They are the worst. You hear me talk about it every now and then. Uh, The Greek gods, so Zeus and Hera and Poseidon and All their buds. Uh, They were jealous and mean-spirited and capricious and loved interfering with humanity just for the fun of it. They were essentially completely ruled by their emotions. This is how people in Greek society saw their Greek gods. So when the Greek folks were translating the Septuagint, one of the things that they did was they made God less emotional. And I don't think that they were being malicious, but I think they wanted people to know that, hey, God isn't capricious or has mood swings like Zeus does. He's not going to ruin your life on a wing like Zeus might do. But that did mean that they brought their own biases when they made that translation, when they translated it from Hebrew to Greek. And one of the most interesting translations for me, and I think so revelatory, of kind of how we perceive God, and even how some of those New Testament readers and authors perceive God, was from this verse in Isaiah 63. I'll just read the relevant piece, that in all their distress, God too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy he redeemed them, he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, yet they rebelled and grieved his spirit." Again, so we see that again. It grieved God's spirit. Can you imagine God grieving? But the Septuagint, this Bible that is so unbelievably influential, translated that word not as grief, but as anger. So God's spirit wasn't grieved, but it was angered. Because, of course, God grieving, that makes God too emotional. <laughs> And again, this is why emotions are welcome at Wellspring, because we believe that we are made in the divine image, and the divine image feels feelings, and that is okay. The counselor keeps telling me it's okay for me to have feelings as well, and I had one the other day, so one emotion, yeah, you're welcome. But because they couldn't deal with God being emotional over it, are like, well, just make him angry. Like, anger is safer at least. But the idea of God being grieving or weak, they just couldn't deal with that. And we do this a lot, right? We we seem to have no problem with with God being angry, but those other emotions don't seem to come as easily. When those street preachers, when I think back to them, they don't seem to want to share the gamut of emotions that God shares. They focus on this one thing. But here's the thing, and kind of part of my point for today, is a God that grieves is a God that draws me in. It's a God that I feel safe around when my heart is broken. It's a God who I know can be alongside me because I know their heart is broken too. An angry God, conversely, is one that probably pushes me away. I don't think we feel safe around the people in our lives that get really angry with us. So is when we look to these scriptures and look to God's emotions, we want to ask ourselves, is God mad or is God sad? All right, second of two questions for today. This is shorter than that last one. And we're really getting into into it here. Um, Occasionally, uh, scripture reading needs a content warning. This one does. Um, if I say things that are upsetting and you need to uh, leave, that is absolutely okay. If you think I can handle this in a more honoring way, please let me know. Uh, I want everyone to be safe and protected here. Um, and sometimes scripture is, is really challenging. Uh, and so one of the questions for today is when we read these difficult parts of scripture, is it God who is mad or is it someone else who's mad? Is it God who's mad or is it someone else who's mad? Because we often refer to as the Bible being the word of God, uh, which I think we need to be more careful around uh, because the Bible doesn't refer to itself as the word of God. The Bible refers to Jesus as the word of God. So we absolutely follow the word of God. His name is Jesus. But but we need to be... uh, careful and thinking about the Bible as being the Word of God can lead us to some difficult places because there's some really difficult and challenging and straight-up weird verses in the Bible. I'm sure many of us have read the Bible and thought, why is that in there? And that's, it's really good to ask these questions because the Bible is a collection of literary genres gathered over multiple centuries and multiple countries and dozens of people going through all different unique life experiences, and I think that God is present in all of them. But it also means that people's experiences of God will be different too. That's okay. And it means a lot of things that happen in the Bible are things that God doesn't want to happen. I think that's okay. A lot of the words in the Bible maybe aren't words that God, God's self, would use but doesn't make space for. So with that, I'm going to read Psalm 137, and if you know, you know. Um, it says this. this. This is one of these passages that is used, um, like especially by atheists, I think, to say, look how awful and violent the Old Testament is, look how awful and violent God is. This is really problematic. Don't worship God. Uh, I think it's the opposite. Psalm 137 says this, uh, and this is, Uh, People who have been exiled from where they lived. Uh, So this is uh, one of the real downsides in the history of God's people, when things were really rough, when they've been kicked out of where they live and they've lost everything. So they've lost their friends and they've lost their family. And and this is a song that they sing. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, there on poplars we hung our harps. For there, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did. On that day, Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. I believe a lot of things in the Bible are things that God did not want to happen. And I think that's okay. In Psalm 137, we hear a cry of a people whose life has been ruined, who have had everything taken from them. So when they cry out, happy is the one who seizes your infants, we don't want to ignore that previous line that this is what has been done done to them. God isn't saying these things, but God is allowing these things to be said. And some people understandably think this is problematic and violent. I think it is vital. I think it is vitally important for us to remember that God allows space for those people to cry out. The Psalms are like, perhaps the greatest example of this, but you can find it all over the place. The reality is that traumatized people have a way of speaking and we need to make room for however it is they need to speak however it is they need to share however it is they want to share their hurts with us Um, i was given permission to share this story which is really important to do Uh, some friends of mine recently uh, lost a child due to absolutely heartbreaking circumstances as if there are any other and the church that they go to were, were pretty good and they put people around them. And for the most part, people were good and generous and made time. Uh, but one woman uh, called up my friend and said, hey, you know, you can say whatever you need to say to me, uh, but whatever you do, don't get angry with God. And I don't think that person was being malicious. Like they were trying to be helpful, but I think they had a... They probably had an idea that if my friends got angry with God, then God would be angry back, and no one wants that. But that ignores the story of our scriptures. This ignores the beauty and the majesty and the complexity and just the heartbreaking nature of so much of the Bible. It negates the complexity and the nuance and the beauty, and we don't want to do that to scripture. Like Scripture gives us permission to be really honest with God, to say things we might not say to our friends or our family or in a church or in a sermon. <laughs> I don't think God is mad in Psalm 137, uh, but God allows us to be mad at them. Sometimes the prayers in Scripture can get, like, really personal as well. Sometimes these prayers are, it's unbelievable, and, and I love... uh this isn't shading the way that we pray in church. I think that's a good thing to do. But there are so many ways to be honest with God. There are so many ways to converse. And, and I think if we look to Scripture a bit more, maybe we'd, we'd capture some of that. Like Jeremiah, this is like, it sounds weird. This is one of my favorite verses, but it's something I come back to. In Jeremiah 15, it says, Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? You, he's speaking to God, you are to me like a deceptive brook. You are like a spring that fails. Do any of us dare to pray like that? Because Scripture gives us permission to do so. I believe it's in there for a reason. That when our hearts are breaking, (laughs) that God is always there to listen. Always willing to make room. Do we dare to pray like that with a vulnerability that comes from a broken heart? Because I know I will admit, and we'll get into it next week, that there are times when God does get angry with humanity. Uh, but let's not ignore the fact there are so many instances in Scripture of humanity being angry with God, and God being big enough to take it. I am done. Final, final thought here. Like, I know that I lured you all in with this pretense about, like, God being angry, but really I just want people to be able to be honest and know that they are loved, whatever is on their heart and whatever their prayers need to look like. Like I want us in a place where we can, like if we can be honest with one another, that's amazing. And we need to do even better and we're doing well, we're doing well. We need to do even better about cultivating a place where we can be really honest with one another without fear of judgment or anything like that. And I think we're doing well and I think we can keep doing well. But we need to cultivate those spaces. And and yeah, when your life is good, like that's great. You can be gracious, absolutely. Be gracious, be thankful. That's all good things to do. But when your heart is breaking, know that no one here will tell you how to pray. And when you don't have the words, that's okay. You can, you can come to us and, and maybe we can help have some words for you. Sometimes we feel that we have to be in the right state of mind to pray. I was, I got some, some rough news a couple of days ago and I was in such a bad mood and I like read my Bible really angrily <laughs> that day. I was like, I'm gonna read it, but I'm not gonna enjoy it. Um. <laughs> it's like two days ago. Um. <laughs> but, but, but looking back, I'm so glad I did like still acknowledging God's presence in that, in that space of just being mad at the world. Um, and know that, that God isn't, isn't waiting for that to go away, that, that God is always there for that conversation, for that prayer. Uh, to finish with a quote by Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, she says that God doesn't wait for our anger to pass before drawing near to us. God is, in fact, sitting in the middle of it with us. Let's pray. Lord, it is always our hope that we can come to you with open hearts. Or well, for the pieces that we are scared to share or I don't feel safe sharing with you. We pray that you, you burn away all those lies. Lord, we thank you that this is a space where we try to honor and trust and love one another. And we pray that uh, everyone goes away from here with a greater understanding of how much you love them. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.